Listen to True Talk Radio on the go. Download the True Talk Radio Network app from the Android or Apple Store. This is the Howie Silbiger Show on the True Talk Radio Network. Call 1877-669-1292. And calling is going to be a little bit of a problem today. We uh, we're having a problem with the phone lines. Uh Unfortunately, the soft phone that I use to put the lines on the air here on True Talk Radio is not working. Um, they're working on it. They they gave me a bunch of technical support stuff to do. I, I did everything they told me to do, and it's still not working. So we are uh, we're trying to fix it, so um, bear with us. It might come back while we are on the air. It may not. I hope it does, because I love talking to you and the whole purpose of this show is to talk to you and to um to have a conversation with you not for me to just talk with you to talk with you not just to talk to you but uh there is a problem and uh we're working on it so the phone lines work so if you call the lines it will ring i just can't pick it up here in studio so there you go I'm Howie Silberger. This is the Howie Silberger Show. We're usually heard on Sundays. For the next couple of weeks, we'll be heard during the week because uh, I have I have stuff that's scheduled for Sundays, and I won't be able to be on the show on Sundays. But we'll um, we'll, we'll still do shows because uh, I think it's important that we continue doing the shows. I think I think that you guys want to hear the shows, and uh, and you know, to be honest, I, I really love doing them. So uh, here we are. So. Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, was not able to form a coalition. This is uh, breaking news just now. And he was not able to form a coalition. Therefore, in September, Israel goes back to the polls. There will be another election in September. It's an interesting uh, scenario. When a country has an election, then the government cannot be formed. I mean, that could only happen in a parliamentary system. And in a warped parliamentary system like Israel's parliamentary system. So uh, it's quite interesting when that happens. Uh, it hasn't happened very often. Normally in Israel they can form a coalition. Normally there's no problem forming a coalition. In this case, there seems to be a problem. So Israel goes back to the polls and we will continue to cover that. We will continue to talk about it. And we will continue to look at the situation in Israel as things progress. Uh, something um, something occurred to me the other day, and this is uh, this is something that I I don't even know how to. Um, yeah, I was thinking I was thinking today. How am I going to express this without upsetting people, without making people cringe, without um, without talking about something that's kind of weird and irrelevant? How how am I going to talk about this so that you understand what I'm saying? But at the same time, you don't you don't think that I'm a, I'm a weirdo. Uh, not that you that, that you don't think I'm a weirdo anyway, but but you know what I mean. So um, I was thinking, I was thinking, I was thinking, and I couldn't come up with a way. So uh, I guess the only way to do this is to um, is to just talk about it honestly, like I do everything on the show. Just have an honest conversation about it. Now I. I 
I, I was planning on having you call in and weighing in on this. And the fact that you can't call in really bothers me. And so um, I, I'm debating whether I should hold this off until a time where you can call in or or to just do it now. And I think doing it now uh, will, will be counterproductive. So I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till the phone lines work. And then I'm going to um, ask you to call in and weigh in on this. So, you know what? We're not, we're not going to talk about this. Let's talk about Donald Trump because I think that's the second biggest news story of the day. The first biggest news story, of course, is that Israel couldn't form a government. And the second biggest news story of the day is that uh, Robert Mueller, the special prosecutor in charge of looking at uh, Russian collusion in the last uh, election, Russian interference in the last uh, American election in 2016, uh, spoke today, and he spoke to. He spoke to the. Uh, he gave a press conference, and during the press conference, he refused to take questions. He said that I'm just going to make a statement, and um, and that's it. I'm not going to. Um, I'm not going to take questions. Uh, I listened to the uh, press conference. I watched it live, and if there were any doubts about Special Counsel Robert Mueller's political intentions. His unprecedented press conference should put them all to rest. This is an article by Sean Davis of The Federalist. As he made abundantly clear during his doddering reading of a prepared statement that repeatedly contradicted itself, Mueller had no interest in the equal application of the rule of law. He gave the game and his nakedly political intentions away repeatedly throughout his statement. It's important that the office's written words speak for itself, Mueller said, referring to his office's 448-page report. Mueller's report was released to the public by Attorney General William Barr nearly six weeks ago. The entire report, minus limited redactions required by law, have been publicly available, poured through, and dissected. Its contents have been discussed ad nauseum in print and on television. The reports have been speaking for itself since April 18th when it was released. If it is important for the work to speak for itself, then why did Mueller schedule a press conference in which he would speak for it weeks after it was released? If the statement given the venue in which it was provided is self-refuting. So let's start with the Mueller's team's unique take on the nature of a prosecutor's job. The standard American view of justice affirmed and enforced by the U.S. Constitution is that all are presumed innocent, absent conviction by a jury of specific charges of criminal wrongdoing. That is, the natural legal state of an individual in this country is innocence. It's not a state or a nature bestowed upon by cops or attorneys, innocence is not guaranteed by unelected bureaucrats or federal prosecutors. At one point in his remarks, Mueller seemed to agree, referring to indictments against various Russian individuals and institutions for allegedly hacking American services during the 2016 election. Mueller said that the indictments contain allegations and were not commenting on the guilt or innocence of any specific defendant. Every defendant is presumed innocent until proven guilty, he said. Had he stopped there, he would have been correct, but then he crafted a brand new standard. The order appointing the special counsel authorized to investigate actions that could obstruct the investigation. We conducted that investigation and kept the office of the acting attorney general appraised of our work, Mueller said. After that investigation, if we had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. So according to Mueller and his team, charged Russians are presumed innocent... An American president, however, is presumed guilty unless and until Mueller's team determines he is innocent. Such a standard is obscene abomination against the rules of law. 
one that would never be committed by independent attorneys who place fidelity in their oaths and impartial enforcement of the laws ahead of their political motivations. The contradictions of double standards don't stop there, however. It would be unfair to potentially accuse somebody of a crime when there can be no court resolution of the actual charge, Mueller said. But after all, but stating all after all, but stating that Trump committed a crime for which Mueller never charged him. Just as Mueller's own words and actions at Wednesday's press conference proved that he didn't want his team's report to speak for itself. The report itself proves that Mueller and his team don't believe it's unfair to accuse somebody of something a court can't resolve. If they actually believe that, then the 240-page volume 2 of their report on the obstruction investigation of the president would never have been authored. After all, according to Mueller's own statement, such an operation would be patently unfair. And if it's unfair to air dirty laundry against a target who has never charged, surely it's doubly unfair to do so in writing and on camera during a press conference whose mere existence refutes the very claims of its host. Mueller revealed himself as little more than a clone of James Comey, the swarmy, scheming politician who replaced Mueller as the head of the FBI. Recall that it was Comey who assumed for himself powers that did not belong to him by law when he declared in 2016 press conference that no reasonable prosecutor would charge Hillary Clinton with criminal wrongdoings in her mishandling of classified information and unsanctioned use of secret private email servers to evade public record laws. Just as Mueller did in his report in Wednesday's press conference, Comey followed up his declaration that Hillary would not be charged with statements after statement after statement of the all-awful things Hillary Clinton did. There is evidence of potential violations of the statutes regarding the handling of classified information, Comey said to Clinton. He excoriated her for repeatedly sending and receiving top-secret information on her unsecured server, which has never been authorized to process classified information. He even said it was possible due to her extreme carelessness that hostile foreign actors had penetrated her system and obtained highly classified information about U.S. national security programs. Regardless of how you feel about Clinton, Comey's display at that press conference was an embarrassment. He did an extreme disservice to the nation and to the rule of law by unilaterally declaring himself the primary arbiter of prosecutorial decisions in the federal government when that authority belongs solely to the Department of Justice. And he did an extreme disservice to Clinton herself by dragging her through the mud in such a manner that cleaning her name would be impossible. In fact, Department of Justice guidelines expressly prohibit actions, both Comey and Mueller, in naming and shaming individuals who are never formally charged with any wrongdoings. As a series of cases make clear, there is ordinarily no legitimate governmental interest served by the government's public allegations of wrongdoing by an uncharged party. And this is true regardless of what criminal charges may be contemplated by the Assistant U.S. Secretary, uh, as, by the Assistant United States Attorney against a third party for the future, states the Department of Justice Formal Policy Manual on the Duties of Federal Prosecutors and, and Principles of Federal Prosecutions. Nationwide bar rules governing all practicing attorneys in the United States also explicitly prohibit Mueller's display during Wednesday's press conference. The prosecutor in a criminal case shall refrain from making extrajudicial comments that have substantial likelihood of heightening public condemnation of the accused, states Rule 3.8F of the American Bar Association's Rule of Professional Conduct. 
Multiple federal agents and prosecutors reached out to the Federalist after Mueller's press conference to express dismay at the former FDI director's behavior. I have been crucified under this rule for a not innocent comment about an uncharged party, a former federal prosecutor told the Federalist. I literally cannot fathom holding a press conference to say that an uncharged person was not innocent. I wish these former FBI directors would learn their lessons to keep their mouths shut unless you're referring to a case for prosecution. Jeff Danik, a retired FBI supervisor, said during a phone interview with the Federalist on Wednesday. Mueller's performance made it clear for all to see that what he ran for the last two years wasn't an independent investigation pursuant to the rules of law so much as an inquisition motivated by political alumnus. Mueller and his team refused to charge prominent Democrats for crimes he charged against Republicans. Paul Manafort was charged with unregistered lobbying for foreign governments while Mueller left alone longtime Democrat donor Tony Podesta and former Obama White House counsel Greg Craig. George Papadopoulos and Michael Flynn were charged with making false statements to the federal investigators, namely the FBI, while Clinton campaign cronies Glenn Simpson and Christopher Steele's false statements to Congress and the FBI were ignored. Trump's non-existent Russian connections were plumbed, while a dubious Clinton campaign-funded dossier sourced directly to Russian officials was used as a prosecutorial roadmap rather than a sol- rock-solid evidence of actual campaign collusion with the Kremlin. Mueller claimed that his report spoke for itself, then put together a completely unnecessary press conference more than a month after his report's public release, in which he not only just spoke for the report, but expounded on the new legal standards he created to govern collusion. These are the actions, not of an impartial and independent investigator, but of a scheming political operative. None of this is any surprise to anyone who has followed Mueller's tenure in government. As FBI Director, Mueller repeatedly misused and abused the authority granted him by Congress. Mueller and Comey utterly bungled the federal investigation into the 2001 anthrax attacks, resulting in $5.8 million judgment against the government after two men falsely accused of an innocent man of being behind the attacks. Even after the court judgment against him, Mueller was defiant. I do not apologize for any aspect of the investigation, Mueller said afterwards. He then doubled down and said it would be wrong to say that there were any mistakes in how he handled the investigation. Then there was Mueller's handling as FBI director of a case in which FBI agents framed innocent men of murder. The FBI knew had been committed by their own informants. One of the innocent men died in prison awaiting justice for a crime he never committed. Then as special counsel to investigate Russian collusion during the 2016 campaign, Mueller promptly hired partisan Democrats to run his investigation. He tapped as investigators FBI personnel who openly discussed their hatred of Donald Trump and his voters, as well as their plan to keep him out of office. There was no longer any doubt about who Robert Mueller is or why he conducted himself the way he did. As abominable as this press conference was, we should in many ways be thankful that Mueller is so willingly displayed for all to see his disdain for basic rules of prosecutorial conduct, his lack of self-awareness, and his naked desire to stick it to Trump. This was written by Sean Davis. He's a co-founder of The Federalist, and it's an excellent article. And I, I kind of like The Federalist. It's a great magazine. Uh, it's a great online publication. And uh, if you haven't checked it out, check it out. The Federalist. It's amazing. So here we have it. Donald Trump um, was was framed, and there's no question that uh, he was framed from day one, even before his inauguration, 
Donald Trump had no chance of ever serving as president. He had no chance of ever being taken seriously and of ever having a peaceful day as president of the United States. And it all stems to one thing and one thing only. Sour grapes over losing the election. That's right. The Democratic Party just couldn't accept the fact that Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton at the election. They just couldn't take it. They just didn't understand how it happened. And they couldn't understand the fact. They, they just couldn't understand how that happened. And they just couldn't take it. And that's all we're talking about here. And for two or three years now, I mean, Trump has been president for three years. For three years now, all we've been hearing about is Russia, 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 and how bad and horrible the Russians are, and how the Russians have, uh, how the Russians took over the um, the country and uh, took over the election, and and colluded and caused Donald Trump to win, and we find it was all a lie. The whole thing was a lie. So now, after Mueller's report. The Democrats are still screaming, let's impeach Trump. You know, it's it's impossible to impeach a president when he hasn't caused when he hasn't broken any laws. And it amazes me that people who are lawyers and people who have been in government for such a long time are still talking about impeachment when they know that the president didn't commit any crimes and, and there was no discernible evidence that the president committed any crimes and, and they're still talking about impeachment. This hatred, this Donald Trump, uh, this Donald Trump hatred, the hatred of the man, has clouded the good judgment of longtime politicians. It's very sad to watch this. I've been watching this for three years now, as people who were 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 dignified politicians. They weren't great politicians. They were just long-standing dignified politicians. Have really lost their dignity have really removed themselves from being dignified in their pursuit to destroy the President of the United States. And they almost succeeded. And, that, and that's the scary part, is that they almost succeeded. But they didn't. And the President survived their attack, their onslaught. And the, pre- and the President is, uh, is stronger than ever. He's doing a, a half-decent job as President. Uh, I don't know if he's doing a great job. I, I wouldn't go that far. But he is doing a, a decent job as president. And I, I really believe, I honestly, I honestly really believe that if they let Donald Trump do his job, they actually let him serve as president without all this hanging over his head, with all, all this garbage and this nonsense that they're accusing him of, and this garbage and this nonsense investigations this, this fake stuff that they're investigating him for, if they actually let the man do his job, I am fairly sure he would go down as the greatest president ever in the history of America. I am fairly sure that that would happen. But they are not letting him do his job. And they will not let him do his job. And that is the real sad part, is that American democracy has been destroyed. It has been pummeled. It has been it has died. American democracy doesn't exist anymore. And that is the sad, sad part, of the sad moral of the story, really. CNN is in trouble. CNN announced that um, there are more layoffs coming. They are going to, uh, they're going to fire more people because they are losing $10 million a year. 
CNN announced yet more job layoffs as boss Jeff Zucker revealed that the network is losing $10 million a year. When rumors of mass layoffs at CNN emerged two weeks ago, host uh, Brian Steiner, uh, Ste- Stelter, sorry, Brian Stelter, uh, host Brian Stelter denied the story was accurate. However, last week, the majority of CNN's Atlanta division, which focused on health care, was let go. Now it's being reported that the network will make substantial cuts to its London-based operation with at least a dozen employees losing their job. The announcement was made by CNN boss Jeff, uh, Jeff Zucker at a meeting in central London earlier today. I'm sorry, it was CNN boss Jeff Tucker. Uh, the Guardian reported staff, including some managers whose shows were affected, were given no advance warning of the announcement, according to some of those present. Zucker told them that the international channel was losing $10 million a year, and that was, uh, that was horrible, and they had to do cuts because of that. As uh, previously reported, in April, uh, CNN had its worst month for ratings in four years, as Network lost 26% of its viewers compared to a year ago. Given the fact that the network is hemorrhaging money and forcing layoffs, forcing, uh, forced to lay off staff, is it any surprise that CNN journalists are simultaneously lobbying for social media companies to silence their competition? And uh, CNN deserves whatever they get. Because CNN has engaged in a war on free speech. CNN has engaged in, 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 in disseminating false news, fake news. They have led the charge to discredit Donald Trump and to undermine his presidency and to lead the coup d'etat. It is CNN that, uh, that is 24 hours anti-Trump. They, they bash Trump 24 hours a day, seven days a week. CNN has nothing, uh, hasn't covered real news in a long time. And and it's it's sad because I remember when CNN started. I well maybe not when they started, but I remember when they were when they were actually a news organization when they actually had newscasts and they actually covered news. I remember CNN back then, and, and it was a half decent station. It's unwatchable today, and it's not unwatchable because I'm a Trump supporter. I'm not really a Trump supporter. I'm a democracy supporter. It's unwatchable because it is an affront to democracy. It is an affront to democracy when you undermine the President of the United States. It's an affront to democracy when you try to, when you try to, um, to, to discredit an election. It's an affront to democracy when after investigation after investigation you find there's no evidence that the President committed any crime. You launch a new investigation. That's an affront to democracy. That is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing to do. Democratically, democratically, the president has his hands tied the entire time. There's nothing the president could do as president because his head is always into these, into these investigations against him. It is inherently unfair. And if there's any basis behind it, then, then, my gosh, get off your chair and charge the guy already. Or just shut up and let the guy do his job. It's one or the other. But, alas, that will never happen. And Trump will be harassed until the last day of his presidency. Canadian, the former Canadian Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, 
He explains why he's a friend of Israel, despite the lies the Palestinians, the media, and the UN. He says those who don't support Israel are ignorant, who know nothing about the Middle East and Western civilization. Israel is one of the most free and prosperous countries in the world. Not only is Israel a booming economy and a wellspring of innovations, it is the only democracy in the Middle East. So why is it so controversial to support the Jewish state? Stephen Harper, the 22nd Prime Minister of Canada, lays out several fundamental truths about America, America's most critical ally. So um, let, let's, uh, let's, let's listen to what Stephen Harper had to say. All right, so um, <laughs> we're going to do that again. I, I, um, I, it was my fault. I hit the wrong button. Let's try that again. This is Stephen Harper, the former Prime Minister of Canada, and he's talking about why, uh, why you should support Israel. When I was the Prime Minister of Canada, I was often asked this question, why do you support Israel? My response, in effect, was always the same. Why wouldn't I support Israel? Why wouldn't I support a fellow democratic nation where open elections, free speech, and religious tolerance are the everyday norm. Why wouldn't I support a country with a vibrant free press and an independent judiciary? Why wouldn't I support a valuable trading partner and a wellspring of amazing technological innovation? Why wouldn't I support our most critical ally in the Middle East and in the international struggle against terrorism? In a rational world, in a world where simple common sense prevailed, the question, why do you support Israel?, would be like asking, why do you support Australia or Canada? But we don't live in that rational, common-sense world. So the case for Israel has to be made over and over. I, for one, am happy to make it. Let me start with this. Every military action Israel has ever taken has been to protect itself. Israel is not an aggressor state. It's a defensive state. This has been true from its founding to this day. As a fledgling nation in 1948, Israel was immediately attacked by its Arab neighbors. Their goal was not to contain the tiny new country. It was to annihilate it. No nation came to Israel's aid. Not the United States, not my country, Canada, not the United Kingdom. No one. They all thought Israel would lose, but it didn't lose. It won. In 1967, Israel's neighbors again sought to utterly destroy the Jewish state a nation that had then existed for two decades. Again, Israel prevailed. And it survived another all-out attack in 1973. Those are the big wars. But I'm not sure there's been a single day in Israel's entire history when some act of terror has not been waged against it, inside or outside its borders. There have been two bloody waves of terror, so-called intifadas, in the late 1980s and the early 2000s, when Israelis were blown up on buses, at pizza parlors, and celebrating weddings. There have been incursions from terror groups like Hezbollah in Lebanon. There have been thousands of rocket attacks from Hamas in the Gaza Strip, even after Israel completely withdrew from that territory in 2005. In between the wars, in between the terror, Israel has sought peace with its neighbors, and it has achieved peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan. For others, however, Every Israeli gesture for peace is met with incitement and violence. I recount this history for one reason. Any nation that has endured what Israel has endured could easily have become a police state. But through it all, 
Israel has never abandoned its commitment to the rule of law, to democracy, to tolerance. One-fifth of its citizens are Muslim. They enjoy the same rights as Jewish citizens. They occupy key positions in the nation's courts, press, and government. And they have their own parties representing them in the Knesset, Israel's parliament. To say that Muslims in Israel are the freest Muslims in the region is an understatement. How about this as a human rights test? Prisoners in Israel, be they Jewish or Arab, are well-treated, well-fed, and have access to the best possible medical care. Parents and spouses of these prisoners know where they are and that they are safe. Who else in the region but Israel can make that claim? Through all the wars and all the terror, Israel has survived, and especially in the last 20 years, it has thrived. It's known as Startup Nation, and with good reason. Key components of your cell phone and your laptop were designed in Israel. A drug or a medical device that has saved your life or the life of a loved one may have been developed in Israel. Yet there are leftist politicians, activists, artists, academics, and college students who devote their lives to denouncing Israel, calling for boycotts, demanding it be cut off from academic and professional societies. Do they denounce the Palestinian leadership that hasn't held an election in well over a decade? Do they denounce the leadership of Hamas, who use women and children as human shields to protect their fighters? No, they denounce free, vibrant, democratic, innovative Israel. With all the brutal and violent regimes, not only in the Middle East, but around the world, how is one to explain singling out Israel for condemnation? Sadly, only one explanation fits. Anti-Semitism. Do these haters of Israel question the legitimacy of any other democratic nation, of any nation for that matter? Of course, the answer is no. Somehow, they only manage to oppose the Jewish one. The state of Israel has now existed for 70 years. It is one of the freest, most prosperous, most successful nations on earth. Why do I support Israel? Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't anyone? I'm Stephen Harper, 22nd Prime Minister of Canada for Prager University. And, uh, yes, I agree with Stephen Harper 100%. Why wouldn't you support Israel? Well, there is no reason not to support Israel. And those who support the BDS movement, the uh, Boycott Divestment Sanction Movement, uh, you're, you're basically essentially supporting a movement that's calling for the genocide of the Jews living in Israel. Uh, it's true. I mean, you don't. if you don't believe me, uh, that's fine. You, you don't have to believe me. Uh, but if you do a little bit of research, if you just take a look and... Uh, and and do a little bit, a little bit of research, you'll realize it's true. In fact, let me play you this clip from the uh, leader of the BDS movement, Mr. Omar Bogodi, and and something he said, which which pretty much outlines exactly what BDS is all about. Here it is. Definitely, most definitely, we oppose a Jewish state in any part of Palestine. No Palestinian, rational Palestinian, not a sellout Palestinian, will ever accept. A Jewish state in Palestine. So, the, if you didn't catch it, let me play it again because uh, I know it's hard to hear. But but listen to this carefully, because he explains BDS right there. This, this is his explanation of why the BDS movement exists. Definitely, most definitely, we oppose a Jewish state in any part of Palestine. No Palestinian, rational Palestinian, not a sellout Palestinian, will ever accept a Jewish state in Palestine. 
No rational Palestinian, not a settler Palestinian, will ever accept a Jewish state in Palestine. Let's hear that again. Let's 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 do that again. No rational Palestinian, not a settler Palestinian, will ever accept a Jewish state in Palestine. So those of you who support BDS and are dreaming of a two-state solution, uh, Omar Bergudi, who is the founder of the BDS movement, has just crushed that dream. Because no Palestinian, not a sellout Palestinian, would ever accept a Jewish state in any of Palestine. Now, we know historically Palestine never existed, and it's it's a myth. the uh, The entire Palestinian story is a myth. But the people, the radicals that are running the BDS movement, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are supporting this movement. I, I really I can't explain to you why. But uh, the radicals running the movement aren't there to to force Israel to treat the Palestinians better. The radicals running the movement are there to destroy Israel. That's their, uh, that's their job. That's their objective. They want to destroy the country. They, they realized that the Arab countries couldn't destroy it militarily. So they want to now destroy it economically. The economic boycott of Israel is paramount and is almost exactly like the boycott of Jewish, of, uh, Jewish stores in Nazi Germany before the war. Kill them economically, have their economy collapse, and the whole country will go away. That is the um, that is the that is the goal of the BDS movement. That's what it is. Believe it or not, that's what it is. So how do you counter that? How do you how, how do you negotiate with that? And this is a question I ask a lot. How do you negotiate with someone who comes up to you and says to you, "I want to kill you." Uh, I could, you know, somebody came up to me and said to me, Howie, I want to kill you. I, I could look at them and say, um, okay, I don't want to die. So can we find a middle ground? What's the middle ground? You're going to maim me? What's the middle ground? <laughs> you're going to cut my legs off? You're going to, you're going to break my, you're going to break my back? What, what, what is the, what is the middle point? I want to kill you. I do not want to die. Where do we meet in the middle? We don't meet in the middle. You can't meet in the middle. There's no middle ground. Israel can't exist. That's what Omar Bargodi said. He said that no one, no Palestinian, I mean, a Palestinian in their right mind, would ever accept the state of Israel. If that's the case, where is their negotiation? Why is there negotiation? What are you negotiating? What's there to negotiate? Is there anything really left to talk about when people make those statements? And they get a lot of support. I mean, you know, BDS, millions of people support BDS movement. But I don't think millions of people understand that the BDS movement is there to uh, to destroy Israel. Or maybe they do. I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. And and if the um if the uh if the lines were working, I'd have you call in and get your opinion. But they are not working. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm really I'm honestly at a loss. How does this happen? How, what what do we do? How does it happen? And how do you fight this? And should you fight this? Or should you just ignore this? I, I'm not I'm not so sure that this is a fightable thing. I'm not so sure that we should be paying any attention to this. I know I'm talking about it. And uh, I talk about it a lot. But I'm not so sure if I'm giving it too much 
If I, if I talk about it too much, if I if I'm I I don't know. You you know what I'm saying? Am I giving it too much exposure? Am I talking too much about it? It's possible. Maybe, just maybe, we should um, we should just ignore them. If you ignore something long enough, does it go away? Not necessarily. It usually grows and comes back to bite you in the butt. But maybe we should ignore them. Maybe we should uh, uh, just go on an educational campaign and try to educate people on, uh, on, on Israel. Maybe we should... Uh, I'm, I'm not even sure what to do anymore. The Jewish community doesn't seem to care. The, the fight against BDS is pretty weak. But then again, the fight the Jewish community does against anything is pretty weak. They're not, they're not a very strong community. It's very unfortunate. I, I know this is my community. It's very unfortunate that I, uh, that I don't think they're a strong community. But they're really not. Uh, Jew haters, they hide, in their, they hide in their synagogues when Jew haters come out to play. Uh, they, they, they never stand up for anything. It's, it's a sad commentary. And uh, I hate to make the sad commentary. I really do. But it's the truth. And uh, and and that's that's really sad. I, I'm a Jew who fights. I, I I don't mind getting up and fighting. I don't mind putting my neck on the line for what is right. And the right thing is that Israel should annex the land that they conquered in 1967, land that is legally theirs. It should be annexed. The right thing is that Israel should expel from their land anybody who advocates the destruction of the state of Israel. That, that, that is the truth. That's what should be happening. All right. So I, I want to um, I want to play you. It's a little old, but um, but, I, but it's very important. Uh, the real truth about Palestine, Danny Danny Alun was an ambassador, and he, uh, he, he was doing a rebuttal to, uh, to somebody else who posted up. I mean, they were going back and forth for a little while. But uh, here he explains the real truth about Palestine, and I think it's important that we, um, that we understand this. In a recent video, there was an attempt to refute the truth about the West Bank. As a citizen of the only country in the Middle East that practices freedom of speech, I was actually looking forward to a debate based on the facts. Since no relevant facts were stated in the video, as you can see in the detailed response right here, I'd like to touch on one important issue, Palestine. Let's be accurate about what it means. Palestine was the Greco-Roman name for a region along the Mediterranean Sea, which included Judea, Samaria, and areas which are today in Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. But like Antarctica, the Amazons, or Sahara, naming a place doesn't create a nation of Antarcticans or Saharans. In the year 135 AC, the name of the region became the official name of one of the provinces of the Roman Empire in a failed attempt to obliterate the connection between the Jewish people and Judea, the land they had inhabited since roughly the 13th century BC almost 1,500 years before. Only 500 years later, in the 7th century AC, migrant Arabs occupied areas of the region for the first time. 
but they never ever defined or created a state or country there. Think about it. Have you ever heard of a Palestinian ruler or of the Kingdom of Palestine? Can anyone honestly name one historical Palestinian figure from before the age of television? That's because, as a national entity, they never existed. Does that make Jesus a Palestinian? No. Jesus was not a Palestinian. He was a Judean Jew. And his Christian believers are having a pretty rough time practicing their religion in areas that were handed over to the Palestinian Authority. Just like in the entire Middle East, Christian numbers keep plummeting as a result of persecution. Any chance we'll see you produce a clip about that subject? So uh, yeah, we don't talk to we don't talk much about uh, Christian uh, persecution in the Middle East, but Coptic Christians are almost wiped out. Christians are 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 dying at at uncrazy rates in the Middle East, and nobody cares. I haven't you know you you don't have big rallies, you don't have big uh, things, you don't have uh, politicians screaming and yelling, and the uh, so-called human rights activists. They're so worried about the Palestinian Arabs, haven't said a word about the Christians. It's amazing. So here's Daniel on again. Some claim that Jerusalem is an occupied city. They admit that once upon a time it was the capital city of the Jewish people. But they argue it lost the title some 2,000 years ago, after it was destroyed and its Jewish inhabitants were exiled. And they say in 1967 the Jews showed up and took Jerusalem from the Palestinian people. So in that case, why does President Donald Trump want to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem? Here is the truth about Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Jerusalem was the capital of the Jewish kingdom established by King David 3,000 years ago. His son, King Solomon, built the first temple in the place where, according to tradition, the binding of Isaac and Abraham took place 1,000 years earlier. The Babylonians destroyed the temple and exiled the Jews, but the Jews quickly returned. 500 years later, the Romans destroyed the second temple. But did that end the Jews' connection to Jerusalem? The answer is a resounding no. In the 2,000 years that followed, Empires came and left, conquered, colonized, and occupied Jerusalem, never turning it into their capital. While the Jews, Jerusalem's indigenous people, continued living in and returning to Jerusalem, despite the hardship and danger involved. Over a thousand years ago, the Arab writer Mukaddasi complained that the Jews constitute the majority of Jerusalem's population. Jews remained a majority also in modern times, as documented by the British Council in 1864. And Jerusalem was always the center of Jewish life, even for those living far away in the four corners of the earth. Special fast days and rituals mourn the destruction of the city, and daily prayers express the hope of a full return. In Islam, a religion which was established only 1400 years ago, Jerusalem was never as holy as Mecca or Medina. In fact, Jerusalem isn't even mentioned in the Quran. Compare that 
to the 669 times Jerusalem is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. Even Muslims on the Temple Mount turn their backs on Jerusalem and face Mecca when they pray. Whether in America, Russia, Iraq, or Iran, the direction of prayer for Jews has always been Jerusalem, the uniting force and the heart and soul of the Jewish people. So what really happened in 1967? First of all, there was no Palestinian entity. In 1948, Jordan conquered the eastern part of Jerusalem, dividing the city and expelling the Jews, destroying their homes, synagogues, and cemeteries. Western Jerusalem was reestablished as Israel's capital, while Jordan's capital remained Amman. Then, in 1967, in a war of self-defense, the Jewish state liberated and united its historic capital city. What has happened since then? Israel has returned Jerusalem into a vibrant city and a house of all nations, establishing the freedom of worship to all peoples and religions. So, why does President Trump want to move the embassy to Jerusalem? The real question is, why did it take so long? And of course, we know that uh, President Trump did move the embassy to Jerusalem. Um, this, these, this video is a little older, so but that's okay. Um, he did move the uh, embassy to Israel, to, of Israel, the American embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. It was a uh, bold move by the President of the United States, and uh, something that that that's, uh, I'm really grateful for. All right, that's it. I, I am done. I am I'm finished tonight. I want to thank you. Um, I would have done a longer show, but uh, we don't have a phone line. So when we get the lines back, we will uh, we will do a longer longer show. I want to thank you for listening, and I will be back again next week. Uh, I'm not sure what day next week we'll do the show. I'm sure it's not on Sunday, but uh, I'm not sure what day next week we'll do the show. Uh, keep looking at Facebook. Like us on Facebook. How we still work a show on Facebook, and uh, you'll have all the information there. Until next week, I bid you a great one. I'm Howie Silberger. It's the Howie Silberger Show on the True Talk Radio Network. <laughs>